0: It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Welcome everyone to Jewish History Soundbites, Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History with the upcoming Yard site of the Punavizhirov, Rabbi Yosef Kahanaman, who died in 1969. So it's exactly the 50th yard site of the Punavizhirov. Very, uh, monumental occasion. So I'll speak a little bit about him. He came from the Litvisha, uh, Lithuanian town of Kuli. And when he arrived in Tells, he was known as Yasha Kuler. And, um, he ultimately became one of the most uh, energetic, charismatic, dynamic builders of Toira, a very fascinating person, a real people's person, very, very, had a fantastic sense of humor also, and um, both in the pre-war era and for sure after he um, made it to Israel to try to rebuild what was lost in the Lithuanian world that he knew and loved. When he was a Bachar in Tells, he was already a natural leader. Um, in fact, he one of his first expressions of leadership was in a revolt in Tells. Interestingly enough, he led the anti musa revolt. Um, there was quite a lot of upheaval in Tells, which is really a story for maybe a series on the Tells Yeshiva. You can't get the whole Tells history into one episode. it will probably need a, a few. And at one point, the Lamdanim, the top learners in the Telzishiva, didn't want the the Musser guys trying to take over and the Mashgiach taking over. So they joined forces with the Maskilim in the Telzishiva, And the two of them together revolted. And it actually shut down the Telzishiva for for a period of time. So the ones who led the revolt were Yasha Kuli, Kuler, Yasha Kuler, the future Panevizirav, who was the head of the Lamdanim, and his good close friend, who later became to be known as Avram Herzfeld, who later was a very uh, famous secular Zionist, one of the heads of the kibbutz movement, and uh, they they found they when the yeshiva they actually shut down the yeshiva because of this revolt, so they opened a yeshiva the they opened a rebel yeshiva, a tells yeshiva in the uh, in a shul in Telz. And the Panavij Rav as a bacher was the one who was considered in quotation marks the shiva of this rebel Shiva. And it lasted a few months. And of course he had no money so to support the guys there during this rebellion. And uh and uh and he he confronted the Rosh Shiva of Tells, where they had revolted from, where they had where they had left Rablazer Gordon. And in one of his first fundraising, probably his first, he told them, your Talmidim are starving and they're learning Taira. And Blazer Gordon, after all the heartache they had caused him, these rebels, he gave them money, he gave them support. That's because Blazer Gordon loved Taira and he loved his Talmidim no matter what they did. But it also was the first time that the Panevishu tried his hand at fundraising, which would... Ultimately, become one of his trademarks. He was the biggest and greatest of the fundraisers, maybe in history. And um, interestingly enough, uh, in another quirk of history, uh, many were surprised at the Arav's success in the 1950s and 60s in getting plots of land from the Israeli government, in getting in all his connections that he had, in the, in being able to open new institutions, in being able to secure different properties that he was trying to pursue and building rights and he was very very successful and he definitely was successful because he was a, a master organizer good with people good at negotiating but aside from that one of the most powerful people in the Knesset and the Israeli government in the 1950s and 60s was Avram Herzfeld who happened to be a close friend of his back from Tel Aviv so he had an insider in the government then, and that definitely made things a bit smoother and easier. He was a very close Talmud of Reb Shim and Shkup in the Tal's Yeshiva, later of the Chavetz Chaim and the He married the daughter of one of the great rabbis of Lithuania at the time, Reb Leib Rubin, who was the Rav of Vilkomir. He was later the Rav of Vilkomir. He was, when he got married, he was still the Rav in Vids. And um, actually, Rablad Leib Vilkamir, as he ca- came to be known, was quite a famous rabbi at that time. He's quoted by Reb HaNav Vassar, Manakai and in other, in other uh, Sfarim at the time. He had a yeshiva in Vilka Mir, um for younger students. And uh, the Reb Rav was one of his sons in law. His other son, he had another son in law, Rab Asher Baron, um, who was the Rosh Yeshiva in Panavish together with the Panavish Rav. In fact, Rab Usher Baron, was the main uh, Rosh Hashiva in Panevish because the Panevish Rav was always fundraising, even before the war. So the one who was there day-to-day was Ravasha baron, A third son-in-law of Rabbi Leib was a Shraga Feivel Horowitz, the son of Rabara Horowitz of the Slabotki Yeshiva. And he was actually uh, named after his grandfather, of Shraga Feivel Frank. And he was the last Rosh Hashiva of Slabotka. Essentially, he was murdered by the Nazis in Kovna. And... Um, Reb Leib Rubin died before the war in Vilkamir. And uh, in fact, some of our tours of Lithuania, we end up in Vilkamir. It's, it's not that far from uh, our route that we usually go on. There's an old shul in Vilkamir that I bring the groups to um, and speak about Reb Leib And also there's a plaque outside the shul, interestingly, it's a famous maskil who came from Vilkamir, Moshe Leib who That's also a story. And we go to the Kaver Achim. Uh, the mass grave in the forest outside of Vilkamir, a very powerful moving place, where uh, close to 10,000 Jews from Vilkamir and the greater vicinity were killed by the Nazis. Um, so that's, that's Vilkamir. Now the Panevish Rav eventually becomes the Rav in in Panevizh, um after World War I, after the previous rabbi, Reb Itzelah Panevish had passed away following World War I. And he becomes the leader of Panevish Jewry, the Papannovvi Jewish community, which is one of the larger Jewish communities in Lithuania in the interwar period. he was the rabbi he opened he had a yeshiva there he was the Rish Yeshiva he opened the girls' school, which was still a revolutionary concept at the time. Sarir was just starting out down in Krakow and only a few years after her, the Pannovvirov opened the girls' school, essentially a, a spread of the uh, Beis Yaakov movement. I don't know if it was officially called Beis Yaakov, but it definitely was influenced by that. There was a Jewish hospital. We go visit Ponevish on our trips to Lithu- uh, Lithuania. One of our, our, one of my favorite stops. There's a, a lot of Jewish memory in that place. There's a Jewish center where there's an elderly, uh, one, probably pretty much one of the last Jews living in Ponevish today who keeps uh, the memory going. He has plaques all over the town, what the various different buildings were that the Ponevish Rav built Serving the Jewish community, a lot of public institutions. That's what he was always constantly fundraising for. And um, there's a video. I think it's most. I think it's all online today. But uh, we usually go see it there. About the about a, an American family who used to live in Panevėžys, and they came back in the 1930s and took a home video of Panevėžys Jewry. You actually see the the uh, Panevėžys giving a shir. Um, in his yeshiva, in this video, and i'm pretty much the only footage of uh of a Litvish yeshiva pre war where there's an act of shear going on um, and um the Puvi yeshiva today in Pudaevi in Lithuania is a bakery unfortunately, so we go to the bakery and we show them this is where the yeshiva was there's a plaque there as well and uh, in a weak attempt at my phenomenal sense of humor, I tell the groups that. This is the bakery that is the, the uh, Panavish Yeshiva building, but there might be another bakery in Panavish that they claim that they're the genuine Yeshiva building of Panavish. But uh, obviously that's, you know, that's uh, just a joke, and, and that the, that's the building there that we see. But um, the Panaviz the Rav built all that. He went fundraising all over the world before the war. He was in America, he was in Western Europe, He went to South Africa. He was one of the first ones to discover South African Jewry as a major resource uh, and a potential that they had for the Jewish people. Uh, Almost the entire South African Jewish community came from, were recent emigrants from Lithuania, Latvia. Some of them were from Germany, um, none from Poland or Hungary. So it was a very predominantly Litvish, Lithuanian Jewish community. And the Pone very much related to them. Um, He loved them. It was one of his favorite places, both before the war and after the war, in a very in a very great expression of Litvish elitism, which the Panevich Rav definitely had a very healthy dose of that. He predicted that South African Jewry, even though they were heading towards assimilation, and even though they were overwhelmingly secular, especially in his later years, in the post-war, in his last visits to there, he said, "One day, South African Jewry is going to come back to Judaism. Is going to come back to Yiddishkeit. Is going to come back to a Torah way. Why?" And he said, "Because they have not yet. They they still have. Excuse me. They still have their Litvish characteristics. They still have Litvish Amidus. They still have the nobility and the aristocracy, the purity, the beauty of Litvish Jewry, and that natural uh, connection to Yiddishkeit. Their Litvish Amidus." is what's going to bring them back to Yiddishkeit. That was his prediction back then. And uh, and incredibly, it was it was almost a prophecy because today, um, to the best of my knowledge, it has one of the largest proportions of Shemrei Shabbos of any Jewish community in the entire world. It's, I think, about a third uh, religious and it's almost all Baalei Tshuva. So there you go. Chalk one up for the Panevizharov. So the Panevizharov escapes the war and he manages, he was on a fundraising trip um, at the time of the war. He lost most of his family, all of his, uh, you know, his yeshiva, his community, most of his family, one of his sons survived, Rabbi Vram, who later became the president of the Panevish Yeshiva. Um, almost everyone else is wiped out. He comes there at Yisrael and he understands what's lost. And if there's one way to describe the Panevish Rav in the way the post-war era remembers him, is that he was almost the only Litvish-Lithuanian Torah leader, Gadol, that was uh, completely affected and his entire being bespoke the trauma of the Holocaust. And everything that he did after the war was trying to uh, express that in Holocaust memory and trying to rebuild what was lost and talking about it in every single speech there were quite a few Hasidic leaders like that. The Kleisenberger Rebbe, the the um, Blujev Rebbe, was famous. It wasn't so common in the Litvish world. I don't have a good explanation for it. It's probably more psychological than historical. And but the Panevish Rebbe was definitely very much like that. And um, he sought to rebuild right away, which many did. But uh, he rebuilt with a with a vision that was pretty much unmatched. He, during the Battle of El Al-Amen, uh, which which brought the German army the closest it ever got to Eretz Yisrael, he starts to build Panevich Yeshiva. And people say, you're crazy to build Panevich Yeshiva. And he says, not only am I going to build Panevich Yeshiva, I'm going to build a building that's going to fit 400 students. And they told him, not only is, is Rammel on the gates of at the gates of Israel, of Eretz Yisrael, Palestine at the time, but there isn't, and this, is, this also gives us a picture of what Eretz Yisrael looked at at the time. They told him there are not 400 yeshiva guys in the entire Eretz Israel. There's not 400 people in the entire Eretz Yisrael that want to learn Torah, And you're opening a yeshiva for 400 guys, you're never going to fill it up. And he says, okay, I'm going to build it anyway. So they tell him, you're dreaming. And this becomes a famous clarion call of the Panev He said, Icholim <laughs> ich I'm dreaming, but I'm not sleeping. And he says, "I basically, I have a dream. Now, he's not Martin Luther King. He has a different type of dream. But he builds out on a hill in Bnei Brak, and there's three hills that form the perimeter of Bnei Brak till this very day. And he decided he's going to get the land of all three hills. One of them is going to be Panevish Yeshiva. And the other two, in, he's, going to, he's going to rebuild the other Litvish Yeshivas. He wants, again, he lives in the shadow of the Holocaust. And he in independent Lithuania in the interwar period, the the borders of independent Lithuania were very small, and most of what we know as the Litvishi yeshivas were actually located in Poland in the interwar period. So in the small independent state of Lithuania, where the Ponovezherov was active, he was actually very active in the Agudas He was a member of the Lithuanian Parliament for the Religious Jewish Party in in uh, Lithuania, and he. um and there were four main Litzvahashi yeshivas within the borders of independent Lithuanian interwar period. Panovich, Tels, Slabotka, and Kelm. And he wanted to build a memorial to those yeshivas that were wiped out and murdered. And he wanted to build the, those he rebuild them in Bnei Brak. So he had these three hills. So he wanted Tels and Slabotka to take the other two. And he wanted to incorporate Kelm into his own yeshiva. And that's why... Throughout the Ponevich lifetime, he only hired mashgichim. The mashgiach, the musr mashgiach, had to be a student of Kelm. And first it was Rav Dessler. He tried getting Rav at at one point. He later got Rav Levenstein. He Dafka, wanted something from Kelm. This also explains why he wanted so much that there should be a dominant musr feature in the yeshiva after he had led the anti musar revolt so many years earlier. So some people said he had a change of heart but it also is possible because he wanted there to be a memorial to Kelm that it should remain and it contributed something to the Jewish people in that part of Lithuanian Jewry and Musser and that yeshiva should also have a memory. So he succeeded with Slabatka. He invited Rabbi Isaac Sher and the Slabatka yeshiva in Benabrak. I don't know how much it's connected to the Slabatka way, but Rabbi Isaac Sher founded a yeshiva named Slabatka in Benabrak on the second hill. He invited the Telz yeshiva but Ramatul Katz and Rebellion Mayor Bloch had already uh, um, uh, founded the Telz Yeshiva in the United States, in Cleveland, and they weren't interested in moving it to B'nei Brak. So instead, he moved on to others. He said, I'll invite the Mir Yeshiva. They're coming to Eretz Yisrael now. But Rebelli Ziyudel Finkel decided to open the Mir Yeshiva in Yerushalayim. So he's stuck with this extra hill. So as it happens, as much as the Panevish Rav is a Litvak, but the Hasidic courts were wiped out in Europe by the Nazis as well. So he invites the Imre Chaim of Vizhnitz to open his Vizhnitz court on the third hill in Ben and they are there also till today. So he had built this, and he's doing all this building. It wasn't just the Panevich Yeshiva, it was many, many other institutions as well, orphanages and old-age homes and girls' schools and an enormous amount and diversity and variety of, of of, of, uh, of uh, schools, education, social networks. He was literally involved in, in, in so many different things of building, of helping the Jewish people. It was definitely not limited only to the Panevizh Yeshiva. And he therefore spent almost his entire life fundraising. I recently was speaking to an elderly alumnus of Panevizh from the 1950s and 60s. And he told me, he said, I'll be honest with you, I ne- we never saw the Panevizh rab." he came for like a visit and when he would visit we would go and try to schmooze with him but we never saw him he was literally in most spent most of the year in either america or in south america and europe in south africa and other places we never saw him um he he was a master fundraiser he he but and and he uh he was able to you know and he was collecting small donations. He was literally going to people's doors, asking them for $5, $10 donations, which even in the 1950s wasn't that much. He said that even though he told someone that even though he's fundraised his entire life and asked thousands and thousands of people for money, every single time he knocks on a door, deep down, something within him wishes that no one would answer and he wouldn't have to be ashamed and embarrassed to ask for money. That's a big insight into who he was. First of all, that, uh, that it's shameful to ask for money, even if you're the a Jerov, even if you're charismatic and everyone loves you and you're great with people and you're going for such a noble cause also. But it's still embarrassing to ask for money. But on the other hand, it also gives us an insight as to how he overcame it. And he was the greatest fundraiser in history and fundraised pretty much from the beginning of his public career till the day he died. And he never stopped for a second because he believed in it and he knew this was the right thing and he didn't care that he was going to be embarrassed. He also said, I never expect a thank you. He said, I expe—I I hope the best, most I hope for is that they don't spit at me. But I don't expect any thank you. So he said, he, his advice to fundraisers was to lower their expectations. An interesting story that Rabbi Wein related over, he was very close to the Panevizharov when Panevizharov used to come down to Miami when he was the rabbi there. And there was an elderly Yid from Lithuania who had immigrated to America before the war. The Panovich used to fundraise by him when he was fundraising in America in the 1930s, before the war. He was a wealthy businessman, and he knew the Panovich from Lithuania. It could be he even came from Panovich itself. And, and in his later years, in the 1960s, he was already an elderly man, and, um, and he had run out of savings. He had been living off of his savings, this man, and uh, he ran out of savings. When the Panevich Rav arrived in Florida, so now this man was in trouble, right? And even though he had a big, huge, beautiful mansion in Florida, but he couldn't get a mortgage because he was too old. He was in his 80s and his late 80s, and, and especially in those days, no bank would give him a mortgage. So he was just stuck with this big mansion and he literally didn't have bread to eat. A very sad story. And the Panevich was, by Rabbi wine, he said, let's go visit that guy this guy had been a big supporter of the of Panevish and the Panevish for all the years, so the want to go visit him. Rabbi Wayne says to him, you're just going to embarrass him. He doesn't have any money to give you. The Panevish says, let's go visit him. He insists. He goes in, and they start schmoozing, and he starts schmoozing with the guy, and he tries to steer the conversation towards the guy, towards his, the, the, this fellow's monthly budget, and his deficit, how much he needs to survive and to live each month. And he finally gets the guy to, to spit out the number in a very backhanded way. And a couple of minutes later, as the Panevich is wrapping up to leave, he gets up and he makes this declaration. And he says, for all these years, you have helped the Panevich Yeshiva. From now on, the Panevich Yeshiva is going to help you. And I will send you a check every month to cover all your expenses. And the guy starts crying and he says, no, Panevich don't do that. And he says, no, this is what I decided to do. And then he starts crying, he thanks him, he kisses the Panevizharov, and they leave. And the Panevizharov tells, tells Rabbi Wayne afterwards, he says, sometimes the yeshiva is not just a place to collect money for taira, sometimes the yeshiva has to do chesed as well, especially with people who were dedicated and devoted to it. And of course, there's a good ending to this story. The Panevizharov and his successor... Give, them a, give this guy a monthly stipend for years. He had an amazingly long life. He lived well into his 90s, and he received every single month a check, a stipend to live off. That big, beautiful mansion that he had in Florida was worth a lot of money that he couldn't get a mortgage on, and he willed that mansion to Panevich Yeshiva, and they more than made their money back when the guy finally died. So that was a, a great story with the Panevich He also had a very interesting stance on Zionism. Famously, he would he would uh, fly the uh, the Israeli flag on Yom Ha'atzmaut, and when uh, some zealots asked him to remove it and why is he doing that, he said, and he, of course he, he always answered in a, you know, in a half half joking, half serious, in a very dismissive way. He said, he said, when I was in Lithuania, I was a Lithuanian patriot and I flew the Lithuanian flag on Lithuanian Independence Day. So here it's no worse. So why not? So that was. Uh, this also gives us an insight. So his upcoming Yard site, like we said, a little bit about the Paneva This was Yehudi Geber, Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com. Questions, comments, sources, tours and trips to these places like Lithuania and other places to hear about these people and see these places. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Don't miss an episode. You can follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites. And I hope you enjoyed.